All right. Let's see if I can turn this down a little bit. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is addressing the divisiveness, remember, in chapters 1 through 4. And he is attacking this ugly congregation, their sin. And he's using many different tactics, many different uh, ways to go after this sin. And he begins in chapter 1 by saying, Christ is Lord over all of us, and so, so therefore we must all be in agreement. There must be no divisions among us. If Christ is one, then we as his body must be one. Then at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he tells them that they are all united around this one message. And to the world, it's a foolish message. So we could say it this way. We are all united around the foolishness of the gospel, which our world can't understand. Then in chapter 3, we saw last time that all the work that is done in the church is God's work. And so it doesn't make sense for us to put ourselves into one camp or category over another as if we deserve any of the credit. God deserves all of the credit. God is the one who is standing behind the work that's done. It is God's field, God's building, and we simply are His workers. He's the mastermind behind them. He's the one who causes the growth, if we think about it like a field. And um, so it doesn't make sense for us to to be divisive. And then we finished last time by seeing that, that while God is the one who's responsible for the growth and He's responsible for the master plan, the master design, that doesn't allow us to take our work lightly. It doesn't allow us to sit in our hands and just say, well... Let's see this building come together or let's see these plants grow. No, we have a responsibility um, for our work and we all will give an account. Now, specifically, he was talking about church leaders, but I think by application, we, all, uh, we should see that we all will give an account of our actions to God at the final judgment. So that's where we are and Paul picks up on that in verse, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. So let's read. Read that together. I'll read you. Follow along in your Bible. This is the Word of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this text together. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us as we have just sung. 
may your word be clear to us. May you remove the hostility that we naturally have towards spiritual things because of the sinful nature that still resides within us. Remove the blinders from us. Illumine us once again. Cause your Holy Spirit to, to awaken us. Help us to see the glory of the gospel and the beauty of your word and also its application for our lives so that we can obey it. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're on the theme of disunity, disharmony, division, divisiveness, uh, lack of unity, and that's what we're going to see again tonight. That this disunity in the church does not fit with our union with Christ. Disunity in the church does not fit with our union with Christ. And there are two main points that Paul makes in this text, and if you have a Bible that marks these off by paragraphs, you'll see that the first one is in verses 16 and 17, and the second is in verses 18 through 23. All right, so first. The church is the dwelling place of God, so don't destroy it. Now, I'm going to have to tell you why I think that he's talking about the church here, because... I think historically when we look at this passage we think this is talking about individual believers. And and I'll I'll touch on that here in just a second, but I think what Paul's saying in the context is he's talking about the church is the dwelling place of God. And if it is and because it is, then we must not destroy it. That's the point here in verses 16 and 17. Disunity does not make sense to those who uh who make up the dwelling place of God. And so here's another evidence of their childishness spiritually, right? Their fleshliness that we saw in verses 1 through 5. I can't even give you anything deep spiritually. I can't teach you some of the deeper doctrines of Scripture because you're like infants. And here he he says, here's another example of that. You don't even know who you are. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are? Right? So it's an implied answer. He's saying you're not acting as if you know who you are. Remember who they are in verses 9 through 15. Remember, we had the image of the building, that the Corinthians were the building. And then in verses 6 through 9, before that, they were the field. So they were the building. The, the apostles, the spiritual leaders, were the, the builders. They were building on the foundation that had been laid. And then prior to that, they were the field, meaning that, that the apostles were the ones who were watering, or planting and watering, and God was causing the growth. And now he continues that metaphor of the building. And it's not just that, that they're doing damage to any building but they're actually doing damage to what kind of building? Right? Let, let me take you back to verse 9 just to show you that at the end of verse 9, we are God... I'll just read the whole thing. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Chapter 3, verse 9. According to the grace of God which He has given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and others building on it. So there's the metaphor. We are God's building and spiritual leaders build on this building that starts with Christ. And and here in verse 16, he tells us what kind of building we are. We are the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple 
of God. So it's not just any building. It's not just, wow, the apostles really put together a nice structure on this solid foundation. No, it is actually, they're putting together the actual dwelling place of God in this era. The word temple here refers to the actual sanctuary. It's not, do you remember how the, the, uh, the temple was set up? You had the temple, and then outside of the temple, what did you have? The temple courtyard. Okay, so a lot of people could come into the temple courtyard. Not everyone could go into the temple. It was only the priests. And then there was one special room inside the temple that was left only for the high priest. What was that? The Holy of Holies. This word here, temple, you are the temple, is actually referring to the Holy of Holies. If you're to trace this word, this word that's translated temple, trans- take that Greek word that's translated temple here and trace it to the New Testament, you would find that it's talking about the sanctuary, the most holy place. So, so what is Paul saying? Don't you all know that you are the very sanctuary of God? You are the place where God resides. Now, think of that in terms of what you know about the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and how sacred it was. And then think about what that means for us. The reason I know that this is talking about the whole church and not just individual Christians is because in your text, verse 16, the you there, each time you see the word you in verse 16 and 17, it is plural in the... the, uh, in the Greek. Now, we can't see that in our English language, unfortunately, because when we say you, I could be saying, you, go get me a glass of water, and I could be just talking to one person. Or I could say, you, go get me a glass of water. And then I'd have a lot of people going up, if they wanted to, to get me a glass of water, right? So we don't have a way, unless you're from the South, you all, right? You and you all. You're not helping here, Paul. Paul, you're not helping. Okay, so we do have a way then. Okay. So you all and all y'all. Alright, so but but the point is here Paul's saying something like this. He's saying, Do you all not know that you all are a temple of God? Now those those plurals and singulars are important. You you, plural, do you not know that you plural, are a singular temple. Now, he could have said, don't you individually know that you are a temple? You individually are a temple. Now, would that be true? I mean, do we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us? In some sense, is God living within us? Absolutely. Right? The Spirit of Jesus Christ lives within every single believer. Or he could have said it this way. Do you all not know that you all are temples of God? So if you use plural, plural, what would that mean? He'd be saying you each have God residing in you. And that is true. But that's not his point here. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, his point there, he says that in other texts. We have clear expressions that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our redemption. Right? Ephesians chapter, chapters 1 and 2. That he is the down payment of our, he, he's the, the, um, the pledge of our inheritance, I think is how it's said. So yes, absolutely, the Holy Spirit of God lives within each, one of, within each one of us. But here's Paul's point. 
in light of the larger context, in light of the grammar, you all together are a temple of God. You all are the very sanctuary where God comes and resides. So that when we gather together in the name of Jesus, it is as, it is as if Jesus Himself were here. When we gather in the name of Jesus, it is as if He were here. Now, not bodily. Where is He bodily? He's in heaven. Now, he, he exists bodily and He will so for the rest of eternity. And He's going to come back bodily. Right? So, so He doesn't come here bodily, but He comes in the person of His Holy Spirit. And so, when we all come together, there's a special sense of God's presence. It, it, there's probably a correlation between what was going on in Israel and what goes on in the church. Right? In the Old Testament, even when God's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were gone, right? Um, that happened later on, um, like in Ezekiel, where the cloud left. The glory has departed. I think that happens at the end of Second Samuel, one of, the, one of the historical books, right? The glory has departed, Ichabod. Okay, now, when God's glory departed, His special presence departed, was God no longer there? I mean we know that God is everywhere at once, right? His eyes are everywhere on the earth at all times. He, we don't, right, Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere we can go. We can go up to the highest parts of the earth. We can go up to the highest mountains, the farthest parts of the sea, the deepest parts of the sea, and you are there, right? So God is there wherever we are, but there was a special sense in, of His presence when He would come and reside and show Himself strong. And so, so there is always a sense which God is here. There's never a time when God is not here. But there's also a special sense of His presence when we come together as a body of believers. And that's what Paul's talking about. So let's connect this to the overall point, which is that divisiveness within our church betrays who we are. We are God's temple, God's dwelling place. And so when we are divisive, we actually destroy the dwelling place of God. We actually violate what God wants us to be and do. Notice what happens to those who destroy the temple because this is no small thing. Verse 17, If any man destroys the temple. Again, notice it's singular. So I think he's talking about the temple there in verse 16. If any man destroys the dwelling place of God, God will destroy him. So if, he's not talking about a physical building. He's not saying, come in here and do graffiti to the walls. God's going to destroy that person. This building is not the dwelling place of God. This people is the dwelling place of God. So do damage to this people, not necessarily physically, although that could be it. But, but any damage you do, and in the context, what kind of damage is Paul talking about? Division. Through strife. Through, through um, you know, pride. 
Right? We're talking, we'll, we'll talk about that more. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And I think what, what Paul is saying here is, and if you destroy, if any man destroys the temple of God. Now, there is some argument as to which temple he's talking about. Is he talking about the universal church, the universal, we call it temple, dwelling place of God, that is all Christians of all time? Possibly. But I think Paul is saying, in the context, he's talking about this local assembly. You, as you interact with one another, are dividing yourselves against one another. You're causing division and strife. And so what I think he's talking about is the local expression of God's presence in Corinth. And so, yes, God does dwell in the universal church. That is all Christians of all time. But by implication, God makes His dwelling place in all true churches. And even in a small gathering of believers like we have here tonight. Again, if we're talking about an individual person, you know, I am the temple of God, or you individually are the temple of God, then we might apply this by saying, you know, you shouldn't kill yourself or don't purposely cut yourself. And again, there, there's lots of good application we can draw from other passages of Scripture, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying. The temple of God is the church of Jesus Christ in this passage. And they were destroying it through their factions and divisions. And if they destroyed it, they sought to divide the church because of their personal preferences, then God would destroy them. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that God will destroy them? Well, the idea is that if we ruin the church of Jesus Christ, the temple, the dwelling place of God, then God will ruin us. Now, does that mean eternal damnation? Does that mean loss of reward? Well, Paul doesn't say. He just leaves it a little bit vague. But, but what, kind of, what kind of penalty was there in the Old Testament when a person defiled the, phys, the physical temple of God? Right? An unauthorized, pre, unauthorized priest goes into or brings an unauthorized incense. They dab in a bayou. Right? Or coming a high priest coming into the most holy place on a day other than the Day of Atonement. Or if one of the Kohathites, we're going to talk about them this Sunday, one of the Kohathites comes in and touches one of the holy objects before it was covered by the priest. Right? What was the penalty at that time? It was death, wasn't it? And so it could be that God is talking about actually ending a person's life if you ruin this church, you ruin any church, then don't be surprised when God ruins your, your body. Or it could be that God will ruin you at judgment time, like we saw in verses 12 through 15. Again, I don't think it's clear from the text, and so all, the best we can do, I think, is guess. But, but whatever the case, the warning is still valid, isn't it? Whether God destroys us now or in the judgment we need to be warned that there is a strict response from our God when we mess with the unity of the local church. 
Do you not know who you are? You are the very dwelling place of God. Notice why there's such a strict judgment by God. Look at the end of verse 17. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Again, this is plural you, so I think this confirms what I've been saying, which is he's talking about the church as a whole. The temple of God, collectively, singular, collective noun there, the temple of God, you, the dwelling place of God, is holy, and that is what you all are. That's what he's saying. And God's saying, where I dwell will not be defiled by sin. And we'll see this more as we're going through Numbers. This study through Numbers has just been so good for me. And I, I just can't wait to preach this Sunday and next Sunday working through all these elements of God's purity that He... He cannot come into the camp unless the people are first concerned about their own holiness. There cannot be defilement in the camp. And, and the correlation, okay, we are not Old Testament Israel, but we are like the Old Testament temple. And so we too must be concerned about holiness. But the Corinthians were not. They were fighting, dividing, judging by the world's standards, bringing in their worldly wisdom. And as a result, they were tearing apart the temple of God and Paul's warning for them is severe. Notice that last line, verse 17. And that is what you are. You are set apart as holy by God. God's temple will be holy. And this is something that... I didn't consider when I was studying through 1 Corinthians, but just today when I was going through Numbers, I, I was starting to think, and I think it will come up here on, on our Sunday sermons, is that when God starts to see that a group of believers are no longer concerned about holiness, He removes His presence. He removes His special presence. And, and the proof that I have for that is, I mean, obviously you have the examples in the Old Testament when God would see all the, the terrible treachery that was going on and people going through motions. Okay, that, that's probably an illustration. But, but I think we have proof in the New Testament from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What's going on in Revelations 2 and 3? Does anyone know? Jesus is speaking to the seven churches which represent all churches for all time. Okay, from Pentecost to the rapture. And they're just the representation of all the churches. And what is his threat to each of the churches, each, each church that does not take seriously either the doctrine of God or the holiness of God? What is his threat to them? I will remove my lampstand, which is a symbol of his presence. If you're going to be the place... Where my Holy Spirit resides, Jesus is saying, then you need to be concerned about holiness. You can't take it lightly. You can't allow this immorality to go on and continue. You can't allow this doctrinal uh, heresy to continue. Get it out of here. You know, you, I have this to commend to you, but these other things 
I have this against you. And if you do not straighten this up, I will remove my lampstand. Paul's saying, listen, God has made you into His holy place. Now, He's done that first by setting us apart individually. right? We couldn't have a holy place where God could reside among people who are holy if we weren't individually holy. That's why I don't want to undermine that first part that each of us have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. I don't want to undermine that in any way. But the point, the larger point is that we as a whole are God's dwelling place. He calls us out of the world. He puts us into a place with people who are also concerned about holiness. And He expects them to follow His example. We are united together under the authority of Jesus Christ as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word and what He expects of us. So in that way, we have become the very dwelling place of God. And we should serve as a powerful picture to our pagan world what it looks like to have God dwell among us. They might not understand all the implications and what that looks like. They can't see Him. We can't either. But there should be something about us that sets us apart as God's special people working for His purpose. All right. We need to keep moving. Verses 18 through 23. First, the church is the dwelling place of God, so don't destroy it. Secondly, the church and all things belong to Christ, so don't boast. The church and all things belong to Christ, so don't boast. apologize for the longer points here, but uh, sometimes being succinct doesn't work. doesn't get, get the whole thing across, so I, I, a little verbose here. Verses 18 through 20, the church has no use for worldly wisdom, so we must stop measuring ourselves by the world's standards. We, we should not want to make the measuring stick of how well we're doing based on what the world has to say about us. Okay, We should be, there should be something different about us that they should recognize, but how they evaluate things shouldn't matter to us as much as how God does. We need to stop measuring ourselves by the world's standards. And the fact is that we are all servants of Christ. Look back up to verse 5. Right? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, servants through whom you believed. In other words, who are these guys? Well, they're just servants, just like you. So stop, stop exalting them. Stop making them into heroes. Hey, they're just men like you. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. So talking, Paul's saying, me, Apollos, Peter, we're just God's fellow workers. We just happen to be workers in the field. And so if we are all servants of Christ, then, verse 18, we must not be deceived. And here's how Paul puts it, let no man deceive himself. So don't delude yourself by continuing to buy in to and use worldly wisdom in order to evaluate yourself or other Christians or spiritual leaders. You know, this is how we would evaluate it in a business. Well, that doesn't really matter. How does God evaluate us? Because if we allow our intellect and wisdom to take precedence over the Bible, then 
you know what? As a church, we can just throw our hands up in the air. Because if we're going to use the world's wisdom to determine what is the best method for church and church growth, then you know who's going to win? The person who's got the most compelling or winsome voice. That's what the people of Corinth were looking for. Give me somebody who's a great orator. They'll be able to kind of smooth off the rough edges of the gospel. That way it's not as harsh when you come across with sin and judgment, Paul. Paul's like, I determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We must not be deceived. The wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, verses 19 and 20. How do we know that their wisdom is foolishness? How do we know that their wisdom is worthless, futile? Well, there are two proofs from the Old Testament. These two texts show that God has always looked at worldly wisdom as foolish. The first one from Job 5.13, that God catches the wise in their craftiness. The wise don't, the wise of the world, okay, put that in quotation, the wise of the world, they, they don't impress God. God looks at them in their craftiness and says, it's a waste. The second proof, yeah. why we know the world's wisdom is foolish, because of not, Psalm 94.11, that second quotation there, in verse 20, that their wisdom is, notice the end of the verse, useless or worthless, right? The Lord knows the reasonings of the, and again, put this in quotations, the wise of the world, that they are useless. So, we don't need to look for oratory skill and polished speaking. That's how the world measures success and, and quality. God shows their so-called wisdom to be foolish and worthless. The church has no use for worldly wisdom. Secondly, the church is rich in Christ, so we must be united. Again, back to this point, the division doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into who we are in Christ. We have these great riches in Christ, and so we must be united. Verses 21 to 23, Paul concludes his argument by applying this point. So remember in verse 18, he said, don't let, let yourself be deceived. And then verse 21, here's the second command, so then let no one boast in men. And isn't that what Corinth was doing? How were they boasting in men? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. See? You have to, you have to really respect me because I've picked this good leader. And Paul's saying, stop boasting in men. Why? Verses 21 through 23 give us the answer. The basis for the prohibition against boasting, boasting against division is because of this important truth that we probably don't think about very much, and that is that all things belong to you. Look at the text. Look at the second part of verse 21. For all things to belong to you. And then he gives a long list, and then at the end of verse 22, all things belong to you. So he wants them to understand this. All things belong to them. And what is included in all things? Give me some things from verse 22 that are included in all things. Okay, life and death. 
Okay? Things present. Things to come. Okay? Before that, Paul, Apollos, Peter. And then he, he, he finishes off by saying, all things belong to you. So, here, here, here they are making their case for why they're so great because they follow a certain leader and Paul's saying, stop putting yourself under those leaders as if that makes you any better because you realize that because of who you are in Christ, they actually belong to you. In fact, all things belong to you. Everything in the present belongs to you because you are united with the King of the universe. Things to come. Life and even death belongs to you. In the sense that death will be swallowed up in victory when we are finally raised from the dead. So it is not something that that has a hold on us. These leaders don't have a hold on us. They don't own us. They don't define us. They actually belong to us. And so what Paul's saying is we have great riches in Christ. All things belong to us in the sense that we can enjoy and experience everything as it was meant to be experienced. Even death, which the Scriptures often refer to as sleep, a temporary thing, something that is, like the rest of this world, passing away. Not something that is going to last forever for us believers, is it? So we have these great riches. We have the present. We have this future inheritance. We are heirs of God, as Paul says in Ephesians, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that all things are ours in a selfish way. Like, we can just go around and start taking people's cars and, you know, just show up at their house and this is mine. You know, I'm a Christian, so it's mine. But rather that because we belong to Christ, Christ owns it all, and we're kind of co-owners with Him. So the spiritual leaders, the individual Christians, and everything else, they all belong to you. And all those things belong to Christ. That's the point, right? The reason they belong to you is because, verse 23, you belong to Christ. And then Christ belongs to God. So here's the point. If, if all things, or, or let's start this way. It goes God, Christ, us. All things. So if Christ belongs to God, and we belong to Christ, then who belongs to Paul and Apollos and Cephas? Right? Which, ones should, which group should they line up behind? They want to show how great a status they have. Not those. It goes God, Christ, you, Paul, Cephas, and everything else. They had it all out of order. They actually had the whole thing upside down, didn't they? Paul and Apollos. That's me right below them. And See why I'm so great? Because I'm following after them. No, it's upside down. They belong to you. Now, clearly the implication is that we also they and the church actually also belong to Paul and Apollos. But, but the point is, there's no reason to boast in them or your affiliation with them. So here's the command again, verse 21. Let no one boast in men. Don't boast in men. 
Boast in who you are in Christ. You have great riches in Christ. Don't boast in the affiliation you have with your favorite leader. So one principle to consider tonight. Disunity doesn't make sense when we recognize who we are in Christ. This goes along with, I think, the theme of the text. Disunity doesn't make sense when we recognize who we are in Christ. Right? Just think of yourself in terms of other believers, no matter how, how much face time that they get in front of large groups or small groups. Right? How much teaching time they have. That doesn't affect who you are in relationship to them. We are all equally welcomed into Christ's future kingdom. We all belong to Christ. We all will be sitting on thrones with Christ. And Christ belongs to God. And therefore, it doesn't make sense for us to start all this this boasting and these divisive um, groupings that we like to do over our celebrity leaders. Right? This guy is my leader and I'm going to stay with him. Here's how you know how great I am because I'm with this guy. And what that actually does is it causes division, doesn't it? Because someone else might follow a different guy than you do. But if you're both Christians, you actually follow the same master. And for you to divide over which team you're on doesn't make sense when you're all on the same team. When division and disunity abound, we are actually working on behalf of the devil to destroy the very dwelling place of God. Do you not know that you all are a dwelling place for God? And if you destroy God's dwelling place as it's expressed in this local body assembly of believers, if you destroy it, and don't be just surprised when God destroys you. We all have the same foundation. It's Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is important to the building of the body of Christ. Every single one of us is important to promoting and, and uh, living out the holiness that God expects within His dwelling place. Every single person is important. And so because of that, there's no reason for us to boast. It may not look strong from the world's perspective. right? They may come in and say, what's the big deal about that? But do you know what? They are not our measuring stick. How they think of us is not important. Now, there should be something obvious to them, but that's not who we're trying to please, ultimately. The the measuring stick that we have is God's Word, and as we'll see next time in chapter 4, that He requires one main thing of us. And what is it? What is it? Okay, He uses a different word in verse 2. It is required of stewards, managers of God's resources, that one be found faithful or trustworthy. There's the measuring stick. That's what we're looking for. 
And that's what Paul's going to, to tell us here when we get to chapter 4 next week. All right? Any thoughts or questions?